is uh, the first Sunday for our new Transformation Station schedule. So uh, all of the kids are moving up. If, uh, if uh, they were on the verge of being in that next class, then they are moving up from maybe the bus station to the subway, the subway to the, to, um, um, the uh, commuter kids. So, and also, parents, just so you know, this is going to be the first Sunday in our subway station where we have two different groups. Because uh, the, the number of kids is growing, which is a really good thing, now we have uh, the two and three-year-olds together and then the four to, uh, to K together. So uh, that's a really great development. That also means we continue to need more and more people to serve with us in Transformation Station. So if you're interested in that, by all means, uh, let us know. You can let Carrie Lee who uh, serves with our kids and leads that ministry uh, very well. And we're so thankful for Carrie. You can uh, let her know, uh, and, and she'll be glad to, to get you started. Well, uh, my name is Tanner. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Uh, my family had been on vacation for the past two Sundays, so it's very good to be back and, uh, and to worship with our church family. So if you're new here, I uh, hope to have the opportunity to meet you uh, before uh, you leave this morning. Uh, so let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 23, this morning. So let's pray together. Uh, Lord, thank you so much uh, for your grace to us and for this awesome time of worship to sing songs of our faith, uh, to proclaim that, that you not only bled and died for us, but that you rose again. And so, Lord, we pray that as we uh, meditate on these uh, truths this morning, that you would change us from the inside out. Uh, so, Lord, we know that we are all um, very much a, a work in progress. And, Lord, we thank you that, that you are not finished with any one of us, but that you want to continue to bring us into a deeper knowledge of you. And through our knowledge of you, that, that we would reflect who you are and, and seek to bring you glory with our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so if you would, open your Bibles to Luke 23. We're going to start in verse 50 this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, that'll be page 884 there of the Bibles we provided for you. And as we get started, I want to ask you a question. Uh, what are you afraid of? Is there anything in life that you fear? According to the National Institute of Health, there are several things that are common to, to people that we fear in life. I want to give you a few of those, and maybe you can identify if, if you line up with any of these fears, okay? Uh, so the first would be aerophobia, okay? This is the fear of flying, all right? So if you're scared to get in a plane, then you can join in with 6.5% of the population that uh, does not want to, to fly because they're scared of of flying. Uh, if that's not you, maybe you're acrophobic, okay? This is, this is me to a degree, okay? Scared of heights. 10% 10, 10 of us, uh, when you get up maybe above a few stories or a lot of stories, 20, 30 stories, um, you're getting a little nervous about the health of your life at that point, okay? So if, if you're in that club, then you can join me. Uh, what about the next one, arachnophobia? Is anyone scared of spiders in here? Is anyone brave enough to say scared of spiders? That would be 30.5% of the population are scared of spiders. And then, and then, and then this one, okay? Uh, glossophobia. This is the fear of public speaking, okay? So if I were to take my microphone off, hand it to you this morning and say, here are my notes, go for it. How many of you, your knees would start to shake a little bit and you would say, no, I've got to go. Someone just called, I'm out of here. Um, 
that would be 68, excuse me, 74% of the population. Uh, but but here's, here's a more serious one, all right? Necrophobia. Necrophobia is the fear of death. It says that 68% of the population has, a, has a, a fear of death. Maybe for some it's a healthy fear of death. For, for others probably it's a very paralyzing fear of death. But, but the reality is, is that many, many people in our society fear death. What about you? Are you afraid to die? Do you fear death? There was a book written in 1974, it won the Pulitzer Prize by uh, Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death, okay? And this was written by a psychologist, so uh, he has got a lot of kind of theory about our existence and and what's going on. But he says, ultimately, uh, underlying everything, we're we're driven by this this fear of death, and and, and interestingly, because of this, we we try to deny it. In, In every way that we can, we're reluctant to face our own mortality. And so we try to suppress it. We try to run from it. We try to ignore the fact that one day we all will die. But we realize that, man, none of us can can run from reality, right? Death is slowly, if not quickly, tracking us all down. What we find in the Gospels, though, and what is unique about the picture we've seen of Jesus in the Gospel is that he was not afraid of death, but he actually stared death in the face. He was not reluctant to face his mortality, but as early as Luke chapter 9, at the end of that chapter, it says that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem because that was the place where he was going to die. So so from as early as Luke 9 all the way through to chapter 23 when he is crucified, the cross of Christ is looming large in the gospel, Luke, over everything that Jesus said and everything that he did. Now, how could Jesus stare death in the face like this? And I believe it's because he understood that he possessed the power to defy death and to defeat it. And so Luke chapter 23, the focus was was death. In chapter 24, the focus is life triumphing over death. So what I want us to see this morning is that through the death-defying resurrection of Jesus, we too can live the resurrected life. Let's first examine how Jesus defied death through his resurrection. Read verses 50 through uh, 56 with me of Luke 23. Luke writes, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid, it in a, laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. 
Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the Sabbath. Now we saw from the opening verses of the Gospel of Luke that Luke was a researcher and a historian. He had examined and searched out the facts of the life of Christ. And so he is, he is writing, reporting a history here. And in these verses, he is establishing the death of Christ. If we look back at verse 46 of chapter 23, we see that uh, just before Jesus breathed his last, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then his, his dead body hung there on a Roman cross. And the question became, well, what is going to happen to the body of Jesus? You see, for criminals who were executed on a cross, they were thrown, typically thrown into a common grave. But the disciples of Jesus, and Joseph is probably, if not yet a follower of Christ, a would-be follower of Christ, a God-fear, he, he goes to Pilate and he requests the body of Christ so that he might receive a proper burial. And Joseph could do this because he was a member of the council known as the Sanhedrin, a, a political and, and social leadership there in Jerusalem that uh, had power to make decisions. So whereas some of the other disciples would not have had Pilate's ear, Joseph, because he was a rich man and a local leader, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ that Jesus might have a proper and honorable burial. We know that, that Jewish, cave, uh, Jewish graves were often uh, in the side of hills, kind of dug out or, or natural caves that, uh, that then a stone would be laid over. So this was the, the tomb that Ju Joseph owned, and this is where they laid Christ. And we, we see here in Luke 23 that, that Luke gives us more details. It says that there were women, followers of Christ, who witnessed his crucifixion, that also followed Joseph to the tomb to see where he had been laid because the Sabbath was approaching and out of respect for the Sabbath, the day of rest and worship, the, 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 the followers of Christ didn't finish the proper burial customs. So Luke tells us that they rested on the Sabbath, they worshiped on the Sabbath, and then on that next day, we find that the ladies returned to the tomb to finish the burial customs. And so that's what we see here in verse 1 of chapter 24. It says this, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So, so the women entered the tomb. They've brought these spices to anoint and prepare Jesus' body for uh, the grave. And to their great surprise and amazement, the stone that covered the tomb had been rolled away. And then when they entered into the tomb, the body of Jesus was no longer there. Verse 4 goes on to say that while they were perplexed about this, can you imagine? They're asking, confused, what on earth is going on here? It says, while they are perplexed, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. So here you have uh, the presence of angels in the tomb of Christ, 
meeting the women there, and they, they, their appearance is dazzling white. This is common throughout the Bible when there are the appearance of angels. And they, they say to the women these powerful words, why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He has risen. Now, some of you who are familiar with the Bible might say, well, well what's so amazing about this? We've seen dead people rise before in the Bible. Jesus raised, raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. The prophet Elijah raised the widow as Zarephath's son from the dead. This has happened before, even if it did happen, what's so unique about the resurrection of Christ, the living among the dead? Well, here's the difference, okay? Christ's resurrection is absolutely unique because Lazarus and Jairus' daughter and the widow of Zarephath's son, they all rose to die again. But Jesus rose from the dead to never die again. And so we see that there is shock and amazement at this empty tomb. And if you're an honest person here this morning, you're probably thinking, well, did Jesus really rise from the dead? As we're going to see, certainly this was what his followers were, were, were wrestling with. Where is Jesus? Did someone steal his body? Could it be that he rose from the dead? For 2,000 years, people have refused to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They make up different uh, theories about why the disciples would have, would have made up these stories. Perhaps they are trying to point symbolically to higher realities, that we can have hope in life. Or, or with the story of, of Peter meeting Jesus in John 21, maybe there's forgiveness for us all, just like Peter found forgiveness in Christ. And so they say that, that the resurrection didn't really happen, but, but these stories were fabricated so that the, the, the early followers of Christ could have a, a hope and, and live that out. And so listen, while I can't prove verifiably, empirically, that Jesus rose from the dead this morning, just like no one can prove empirically the existence of God, nor could they disprove it or disprove the resurrection, what I want to do is point to the plausibility of the historical account of the gospel, that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. I want to give you seven pieces of evidence that I believe point to the veracity of Christ's resurrection, okay? Number one is the empty tomb, all right? Both skeptics and believers in the first century agreed that there was a tomb outside of the city of Jerusalem where Jesus of Nazareth was buried, and it became empty. That was agreed upon. The question was, how did it become empty? And that's where the uh, debate began. So some people would say, uh, Jesus didn't really die. This is called the swoon theory, that, that he um, was, was kind of uh, revived when he was in the cool, empty tomb. Some would say that, that someone stole the body of Jesus, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus so that they could then make this claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Others would say the disciples went to the wrong tomb, and they were mistaken that Jesus rose from the dead. And still others would say that the disciples were hallucinating 
that they, because they wanted to see Jesus so much that they were uh, hallucinating and seeing what they thought, who they thought was Jesus, but it wasn't really Jesus. So how do we understand and answer these different arguments? Well, number one, there was the empty tomb. Number two, we find that women were the first witnesses to resurrection. In the first century, you have to understand that women were held in very low social regard. Not like in our day. So in that day, it would not even have been permissible, both in Jewish courts or the Roman courts, for a woman to testify for anything. And so it would have been absolutely foolish for Luke and the other three gospel writers to make women be the first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ if they wanted that testimony to stand at all. So this is a very strong argument for the historical facts that are presented in the gospel. But then beyond that, we have the intricate historical details that are found in the gospels. We see that the Roman soldier who stood under the cross and was responsible for crucifying Jesus, he went back and confirmed with Pilate that Jesus really died. John 19.34 even tells us that they, they uh, drove a spear into the side of Jesus to make sure that he had died. That's one uh, piece of, of historical detail. We also found in, in Luke 23 that the women went to the tomb. They saw where Jesus was laid. And the disciples then followed and went to this specific tomb. So we, we shouldn't believe that there was a, a wrong tomb involved. And then, and then as we're going to see in a bit, there were, the, the grave clothes of Christ were laid behind. So who would steal a body and leave the grave clothes in place? That doesn't quite add up. But then even beyond that, what you have in the Gospels are all of these precise names. So if you want to look down in chapter 24 at verse 10, it says Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James. And the other women who saw these things, they went back and reported this. Why does Luke give the names of the women? Why does Luke, as we'll see next week, give the name of one disciple, Cleopas, that... Uh, Jesus appeared to and not both of the disciples that Jesus appeared to, it seems that what he's doing, and this is what Richard Bauckham, a New Testament scholar, says, is by dropping these names, he's basically saying, go check the sources. Go do your homework. Investigate it for yourselves. Go and talk to these women. Go find Cleopas, the family of Cleopas, and ask them if these things were not true. They saw Jesus with their eyes. They touched him with their hands. As John read for us, Jesus appeared to over 500 people. All of this points to the fact that these disciples weren't hallucinating. And if, if you don't buy that, then just... Check the next, next piece of evidence that, that the, the, the disciples were initially shocked and they did not believe. You see, the, the disciples were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Even though Jesus, as we'll see, had, had hit, uh, told them that he would rise, it says that these things were hidden from them. So Jewish expectation was that everyone one day at the end of the age would rise from the dead, but that 
no one person would rise from the dead before the final day when everyone rose from the dead. So this is why the disciples were shocked. This is why they, they did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead initially. But let me give you a few other pieces of evidence. Uh, number, number five here, the, the early church worshipped on Sunday. So they took the traditional day of, of worship, the Sabbath, which was Saturday, and then as Acts 20 verse 7 tells us, they began to worship on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection from the dead. If, if they did not really see Jesus on that third day, why would they change something that they had practiced for centuries? We also see, number six, that the disciples worshipped him and ultimately most all of them died for him. So who worships a dead man, number one, and number two, who would willingly die for something they knew was a fabrication, a lie, a hoax? Finally, number seven, on top of that, these disciples were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ and the church exploded from that point. And if you'll do your historical homework, you'll find that there were many uh, messianic movements dating before the birth of Christ and even after the life of Christ. But in every one of those messianic movements, once the leader died, the, the movement quickly fizzled out. So how do we explain this group of tiny followers of Jesus exploding throughout the Roman Empire into the largest religion in the world, I would say it's because they really believed that Jesus rose from the dead. So if you begin to take all of these pieces of evidence, I believe they reinforce the biblical account that Jesus truly rose from the grave. But here's a greater question, okay? You see, we can, we can sign off on the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection, and it can mean absolutely nothing to us. You see, it's, it's one thing to say, yes, Jesus rose from the dead, but then if he rose from the dead, what does that mean for us? What's the theological significance of the resurrection of Christ? Well, that takes us to point number two. I believe the resurrection of Jesus changes absolutely everything for those who believe. Look back in verse six. After the angels say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Then they say, remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So, so the angels point back to the divine necessity of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. They, 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 they remind them, hey, don't you remember when you were in Galilee back in Luke 9, 22 and Luke 9, 44 and Luke 18, 31 through 34 that Jesus said, hey, I am going to be handed over to the authorities. They will, I will suffer. They will kill me. I will be buried. But on the third day, I will rise from the dead. And maybe you're thinking, well, uh, 
Three days, we normally count three days as 72 hours. So if Jesus, you know, died on a Friday night and he was uh, raised by Sunday morning, then how do we get three days out of that? Well, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay, one, two, three. There's your, your third day. Just as Jesus said, this is the account of the Gospels. And what we learn from this here is that much of the Christian life can be summarized in the the need to remember the words of Christ and to live accordingly. Okay, It's, it's, it's really as simple as that. If we would heed the words of Christ, remember them, and live accordingly, then we would have the Christian life figured out and we would live massively fruitful lives to the glory of God. So, so we see that, that, the, that the women and, and even the disciples, they didn't, they didn't remember Jesus' words, okay? These things were kind of concealed from them. If, if Jesus is alive, what does this mean? Well, it means that everything that he said was true. All of Jesus' words, all of Jesus' deeds, if Jesus rose from the dead, then God's stamp of validation and vindication is now on the life of Christ. He can be trusted with our lives. It's impossible, I believe, to underplay the resurrection of Christ. We cannot make too much of the resurrection because if Jesus was truly raised, then it truly does change everything for us. And so let me give you some implications of the resurrection of Christ. And, and, and as we're going through these, I would just ask you do, you, do you buy them? Have you embraced them? Do you experience them on a daily basis? Because the resurrection is not only the, the centerpiece of the, of the theology of the church, it is also the centerpiece of the practical implications of how we live our Christian life on a day-to-day basis, okay? So let's work through these, the re- implications of Christ's resurrection. Number one, salvation is found in him. Okay, salvation is found in him. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. If we were to go on reading, we would see that he says, if Christ has not been raised, then he has no power to save you from your sin. Which basically means we have no hope for God to meet both our present needs and our future needs in eternity. So this is, this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So in the resurrection of Christ, Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death. And this fact alone, if we have experienced salvation in Christ, this should fill us with with immense hope and life and joy, right? There, There is no reason, no explanation for a Christian to consistently walk around and mope through life. Like there is not something to live for if we've received this salvation in him. Hopefully this does something to your joy level this week that you can walk around in fullness and confidence because we have experienced this salvation in Christ. Number two, we also, because of the resurrection, have immense hope. 
1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So I don't know if you're like me, but we, I think we all need a little hope in this life that things are can be better than we currently find them. And this is where the resurrection infuses our lives with great hope that, that there is something more, that there is something better. This is one of the reasons why we're excited at Redemption Hill to, to launch a counseling ministry, both to our church and also to our community. Because we realize that, that there is not only brokenness all around us, but there is also brokenness within us. People deal with anxiety and depression and addiction and fear and marital problems and parenting issues. We deal with all of this every single day. And so what we want to do is offer free of charge counseling both to our church family and also to the larger Medford area to say, hey, if you need some counsel, we want to offer you from a biblical perspective God's hope and help for you. This is part of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. Number three, we possess divine power. Now, I love this one, okay? Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that the Ephesians might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So what Paul wants them to, to know is not a power that they could possess, but a power that they already possess, and it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's amazing, right? That's mind-boggling truth, that, that, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead, by that power that raised him from the dead and seated him above all things to reign over all things, that power is available to us. That power is in us. So now there is nothing in our lives that we cannot do because God is giving us the strength to accomplish them. There is nothing. Let me, let me clarify that. There is nothing. I'm not talking about, you know, hey, I'm going to go play the lottery and win a million dollars. Okay, we don't devise that around here. What I'm saying is, is that uh, there is nothing that God would call us to do that he does not give us the power to do. You get that? Is anyone excited about that? That's some pretty good news, right? Man, it's hot in here. Give me some AC. We got to get people riled up, okay? This is some awesome, awesome truth, all right? Uh, number, number four, okay? Our lives matter. Our lives matter. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, after all of these truths of the resurrection, he says, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So what does this mean? It means because Jesus has been raised, everything that we do, every good deed in his name matters. So this week, when we gather on the field behind the Andrews Middle School for soccer nights, and we display the love of Christ to our community, 
And we exercise patience as people are trying to be registered there. And as, you know, we, we deal with kids that don't want to listen to our great coaching, but want to kind of, you know, stand on their head or push their friend, you know. I mean, all of that carries eternal weight behind it because Jesus has risen from the dead. Every good deed, everything that we do matters. It counts for eternity. And then finally, his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. The power of death was shattered in the death of Christ. Acts 2 says it was impossible for death to hold Christ. And consequently, if we are united to him, then it will be impossible for death to hold us as well. Jesus says in John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. So if you have placed your faith in Christ, in his atoning sacrifice for you, as John preached on last week, and you've trusted and believed that that God raised him from the dead, and you are staking your life upon him, then all of this is true for you like every single day. This is the difference that the resurrection makes for us. The resurrection of Jesus confirms what we already know to be true in our hearts, that there has to be something more, something better. There has to be some kind of resolution to the story of our brokenness, not only within us, but also around us. And this is what the resurrection does. It begins the final resolution to the story. Do you see that? Not only personally that one day we will be raised and perfected with Christ, but that he will restore all things and the brokenness of this world will be brought back together and ultimately healed. Yale professor Yaroslav Pelikan said this about the resurrection. I love this quote. He said, if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. Do you get that? In other words, if Christ is still dead, then it doesn't really matter how we live. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we can eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If if this life is all there is, then do whatever in the world you want to do, because this is it. But if Christ has been risen, then there is no other reality, no other truth that compares to this. And this fact then controls everything about us. Nothing else matters in comparison to Christ and his resurrection. So to to conclude here, let me just challenge you. Wherever you are on the spectrum of Christianity and belief in Christ, let me challenge all of us here to respond with faith in Jesus and experience his resurrected life. Look back in Luke 24, uh, verse 8. It says that that after the angels had, had said these things, they remembered his words, and then returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. 
But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. Now, are you surprised by this? The women experienced the empty tomb. They received the report of the angels. They go back and share this news with the disciples, those who were the closest to Jesus in his life, and it says that they were stupefied by the report. It says that these words seem to be an idle tale, that they were nonsense to them. Luke, being a physician, uses a medical term here. It's the only time this term is used in the Bible that um, it refers to the 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 delirious talk of someone who is extremely sick. This is how they received these words from the women. So it's not to our surprise then that verse 11 says that they did not believe them. So if, if you are skeptical this morning, or if you are sharing the message of Jesus with someone who received them with skepticism, know that you are in good company because the earliest Followers of Christ also received this news with skepticism, which ironically, as we saw, actually points to a reason to believe in the resurrection of Christ. And so we see that, 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 that most of the disciples didn't believe them, but, but then verse 12, Peter runs back to the tomb, sees the linen claws thinks on everything that Jesus said and it says that he went back and he returned and he was marveling at what he had seen. Now we can't know decisively if, if at this moment Peter believed, okay, it tells us in John that John, the beloved disciple, that, that he believed at this point and I have to think that Peter probably as well walks back and saying it's all true. Just as Jesus said he would rise, so he has risen. And we can stake our lives on him. So let me ask you this morning, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? You see, it's not enough to sign off on that intellectually and say, you know what, I, I understand that and I even accept that that Jesus really rose from the dead. You see, that those are only two parts of faith, uh, understanding and ex acceptance of, of those, those words, okay? But, but what has to happen is not just an understanding and acceptance, but a trust in them. We have to trust that, that Jesus is who he says he is and that he can give us life. So it's not only the question, do you believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead, but have you trusted in his work on the cross and in his empty tomb? Maybe a way to understand this is to think about uh, what many people saw on television a little more than a week ago. Who saw Nick Walinda walk across the Grand Canyon, part of the Grand Canyon? Did anyone see that? Maybe you've heard of a report about this. There, there's a man named Nick Walinda. He is a, 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 a an artist that, that does all these amazing stunts and feats. And so you can see some of the pictures here, okay? This was a, a section of uh, just off of the Grand Canyon. And this tightrope stretched 1,500 
feet across the canyon, okay? There is no safety net here. All he has is his bar and this rope. Now, I am physically, as I'm watching this, I am physically, my palms are beginning to sweat, okay? And, And I'm watching this and I'm saying, dude, man, what on earth are you smoking walking across the Grand Canyon? But thankfully, Nick made it to the other side, okay? There was another uh, tightrope walker in the 19th century by the name of Charles Blondin. And Blondin was famous, just as Walenda did last year, Blondin was famous for walking across a tightrope over Niagara Falls. And it was said that, that, that Blondin could walk across blindfolded, and he could even push a wheelbarrow across the tightrope. And so he would, you know, walk across, then he would go blindfolded, then he would take the wheelbarrow and walk across. And, and the people were amazed by all of the, the, the stunts that Blondin did. And so he would just, you know, raise the, the crowd to a feverish pitch, saying, you know, do you believe that I can uh, walk across again in the wheel, with pushing the wheelbarrow? And of course people were saying, oh, we've seen you do it before, of course you can do it again. And Blondin then would say, if you really believe it, who's willing to get in the wheelbarrow? Who's willing to jump into the wheelbarrow and be pushed across Niagara Falls? You see, the crowd went from understanding and accepting that he could do it to having to really trust in the fact that he could do it. And this is a picture of faith. This is a picture of true belief in Christ. It's not enough just to say, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but I am staking my life upon his death, his life, his resurrection, casting all of my hope on what he has done for us. So have you believed, have you trusted in the resurrection the work of Christ? Are you experiencing salvation in him? And if you are, then are you seeing all of the benefits that come that we've looked at through the power of the resurrection of Jesus? I want to invite you to respond to Christ today, to trust in him with your life and experience the salvation that he gives us through his awesome work. Let's pray together. This morning what I want to do is something a little different. I'm going to pray a few simple prayers and after each line I just want to invite you, if God leads you to, 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 to repeat these words either softly or silently there in your seat as I lead us. So let's pray together. God, we pray that you would give us a joy that reflects the fact that Jesus has been raised. God, we pray that you would give us a love that reflects the fact that Jesus has been raised. God, would you fill us with a hope and a power that reflects this news that Jesus is alive today. Lord, would you give us a heart to serve you that reflects that 
all of our work matters to you and counts for eternity because Christ has been raised. And finally, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with with a vitality and fullness and, and joy because Jesus has been raised. God, it's our prayer that this news would be absolutely transformative for us and that, they would, that we would live in the power of Christ's resurrection. We pray in his name, amen.